Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And in today's episode, which we're recording remotely on the 28th of January of 2021, I'm joined by two dancers and teachers of Bharata Natyam, which is one of India's oldest classical dance traditions. Smitha Margal is based in Dublin, Ohio, which is where her dance school, Salambam, is located. Smitha is originally from Chennai in India, which is the home of my other guest today, Priya Murali. Priya is the founder and director of the Sri Salambam Academy of Fine Arts. Both of my guests are senior disciples of Professor Sudarani Ragupati, a renowned practitioner of Bharatanatyam. And in fact, my guests studied together and are longtime friends and colleagues. Smitha and Priya, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. I think a lot of our listeners are not going to know too much about Bharatanatyam. So I wondered if you could start by giving us a little bit of an outline of the history. Smitha, do you want to take that first? Sure. There's references of dance in India going back to the Vedic times. Vedas are scriptures that are the basis of a lot of Hinduism. Fast forward from there, more in the 1700s, Four brothers who are popularly known as the Tanjo Quartet, they were court musicians and they were kind of the forefathers of Bharatanatyam as we know it today. They are the ones who have codified the steps that we use in Bharatanatyam. They have composed many items, dance pieces for Bharatanatyam and they've left a legacy for Bharatanatyam. So that would be in the 1700s. And then there was a dark period after which in the late 1900s, Rukmini Devi Arundel, Srimati Rukmini Devi Arundel of Kalakshetra and E. Krishnayar, they brought out Bharatanatyam to be more popular and on the present stage as we have seen it being done. Right. Priya, do you want to tell us a little bit about the actual form of Bharatanatyam? What does it look like when people are performing it? Just let me add a little bit to the history of dance and then come to the form. We have our whole Hindu pantheon of gods who are all dancers. So you have uh, Shiva Nataraja, the cosmic dancer. And it is said the very act of creation is his dance. Like he danced and created the world. And you have Krishna, the god with the flute, who is an eternal dancer, and you have the elephant god called Vinayaka or Ganesha who also danced. So what is Bharatanatyam? You have rhythmic dance, which is called Ritta, where you, with your whole body movements, you weave patterns with your feet, lot of footwork and hand gestures. And then you also express an idea. There is an expressive part of the dance, which is called Abhinaya, which actually is uh, the soul of our dance. You express an idea, not only with your body, but with also your face. And our classical dance forms were born at the temples. So what happens is you find the Bharatanatyam being called a sacred, a divine form is because finally it is a means of communicating with the higher form. So Bharatanatyam is this very vivacious form 
where a delicate balance between physical form of dancing and something to do with expressing your inner self. So that is Bharatanatyam in a nutshell. Okay. And I mentioned in the introduction that both of you are senior disciples of Professor Sudharani Ragupati. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Smitra, I'll put that back to you. Professor Sudharani Ragupati, she's lauded as the living legend. She's a philosopher. She's a performer. She's a choreographer. She's a guru. She's a mentor. She's been in the field of Bharatanatyam since she was three years old. Over the years, she's had opportunities to perform to world leaders. In 1970, she founded Sri Bharatalaya, an institution of fine arts where I enrolled as a student in 1972. And she has contributed uh, very, very significantly to the field of Bharatanatyam. That's wonderful. So this school is where you and Priya met. Is it common for people who go to that school to become professional performers and teachers of Bharatanatyam? Is that the usual path or is it something that people do in the same way that lots of young girls in England study ballet, say between the ages of five and 15 and then never do it again? What's the usual involvement of people in this dance form in India? Priya? Like in England, you have many dancers, uh, many girls, young girls, and nowadays even a lot of young boys taking to music and dance. Uh, the thing is, in uh, Sri Bharatalia, we were uh, taught a kind of approach where all of us in our school institution have Sri Silambams or Silambams. That is the name given to us by our guru for the schools that we've started, and we all run it very professionally. We have lots of schools uh, the world over, Australia, all over the US, of course, all over India too. So it is, I think the passion has been transferred uh, from the Guru. But we all have families and we all have had a good academic background too. Okay, so it seems like the school that you went to in India, there's a kind of expectation when you go in that you're interested enough and talented enough to make it part of your professional life. Is that right? Not really. It is within the psyche of the Indi South Indian families to send the daughters for dance and the sons for either vocal or uh, drums or something like that to learn a classical art. And Bharatanatyam dancers are a plenty in every corner. There is no expectation in our school, but it's just that many of us uh, took to it because the kind of training that we had was very holistic and it kind of fitted into the way we all live. It was a home away from home and it somehow got into the way we all uh, studied and everything was dance oriented. So it's not like that there was no pressure, but it just happened. Okay. So Smitha, I'll come back to you. Tell me how your school was running prior to COVID. What was a, a regular week for you like in as much as you can describe a regular week? The way my classes were established was I was teaching both group classes as well as one-on-one -on -one classes for students who were preparing for their stage debuts. Fridays and Saturdays are pretty swamped. We had different groups that would come, different groups of children. And in the evenings during the week, I had the students for their one-on-one -on -one lessons. I did not have any online classes. I did not teach online because of the lag. It used to bother me. And that is one of my takeaways from COVID is to have come above uh, the lag, uh, being able to navigate myself above the lag. 
We'll come back to talking about that in a minute. But can you tell me a little bit about how a class is organized? I had the privilege of observing one of your online classes at the weekend. And it's really kind of a performance in and of itself, the way that you teach. You're creating the rhythm. You're singing sometimes. And the students are following a choreography that presumably they already know. So can you tell us how you actually go about teaching this form? So the way I have patterned my teaching is exactly the way I was taught it, the very traditional form of Bharatanatyam. Early lessons, students learn steps known as adavus. All the adavus have been put into groups. So there are about 14 groups and each of the groups is put together based on Footwork, for example, the very first group is called Tattu Adavu. Tattu in the language Tamil means to stamp. So the student of Bharatanatyam is learning the correct way to stamp her foot or his foot while doing Bharatanatyam. The posture is that half-sit posture you might have noticed when you saw class over the weekend. It's called Aramandi similar to the plie in ballet, except the dancer needs to maintain that Aramandi position while dancing. Actually, when watching it, it seems pretty easy to do. It's only when the student actually sits in Aramandi, learns how to hold their torso, learns how to hold their core in, learns how to fold their leg and stamp. It is not lifting the leg and stamping, but folding at the knee and stamping. It's only when that happens they realize when the Tanjo Quartet put Tattadavu as the first group, they were actually thinking so far ahead. That is the absolute basis for the rest of the dance to follow. Yes, I have to say, when I was watching it, I did not think it looked easy. Just from doing a little bit of ballet, and this is a very deep plie these girls are holding, and they're staying in it, and they're doing other stuff at the same time, and coming up and down from it. I was like, oh my goodness, that looks really hard. Yes, the student remains in the realm of learning steps for at least four years. They come to me once a week, and then we introduce facial expressions learning to emote very, very simple songs in which having a smile and maybe knitting the eyebrows a little bit is more than enough to communicate what the lyrics are trying to say. We also do theory of Bharatanatyam. There is theory, Sanskrit verses, defining each hand gesture and the uses for it, where this hand gesture, in what form can this hand gesture be used? So when I teach them those hand gestures and the meanings for those hand gestures, I have now begun telling them, okay, this is the expression. You're going to call somebody to you. So when you say, come here, what is an expression you would have on your face? So there's steps and then there's expressions and hand gestures and all of these things are very intricate. They are. So after they learn all the steps, they begin to learn items. So if we think of Ardavus as the basic alphabet, ABC, then these alphabets are put together to form small words. So students are taught short sequences of Ardavus to form a short sentence. So the item, when you look at a dance piece, it's almost like a chapter book 
by itself. We have early chapter books, we have larger chapter books, etc. And the as these units are compiled to make longer and longer sentences, words, books, they're telling stories that relate to Indian gods and goddesses, is that right? It doesn't tend to be stories about anything that's happening today, or does it? There are modern interpretations where music has been set, for example, to talk about um, pollution that is happening and how it is affecting Earth. What is it that we can do to avoid that? Yes, there is um, experimentation going on. I personally have not done it, but yes, there very much is a lot of experimentation. The songs, a lot of the lyrics are based in praise of uh, the various gods and goddesses because, as Priya mentioned, these dances were practiced, are still practiced as part of worship in the temples. So they are considered sacred for that reason. Can I add to this? Absolutely. The thing is that it is a means of communication. So we do have a lot of poetry of ancient Tamil, say the Sangam period. We do have love poetry, which talks of actually very base emotions, but all shown very subtly. The subtlety in expressing oneself is there. One, point number one. So it is not that we only talk about the Indian mythology, but it could be Indian mythology based on emotions that are relevant even today. It doesn't mean that it is kind of fossilized. It is a very dynamic style. Any idea can be expressed, but mostly we have songs uh, which talk about the pantheon of gods, but very relevant to today's ideas. It doesn't mean that only the gods and the goddesses are celebrated. We can even do um, uh, like COVID. Suppose we put a song and there is COVID and, you know, you, we can show it in a minute. People are, they're all suffering and, uh, oh, goddess, won't you come and, you know, so many ideas can be brought. It's a very dynamic form. Yes. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you about as we progressed during the interview. So Priya, tell me a little bit about what you were doing when COVID hit and how you realized that COVID was going to be something that was going to cause a significant change in your life and in the lives of everyone you knew. I think up until March, we all thought that, you know, uh, in India is very hot. And so we had this thing that because it's going to be very hot and we already have a lot of viruses and a lot of diseases and that this COVID is not going to impact us. So I think it was March 18th when a lockdown was announced. So uh, for me, classes are every day. We have classes every day. And my students come in batches twice a week. So for, I think in the whole of March from 18th to the end of March, I somehow thought that, you know, we are going to go back in April. This lockdown is going to like, you know, finish the end of March and we're going back. But before that even, see, our uh, Bharatanatyam is steeped in Indian mythology. So I'd asked my children, including the littlest one, to read. I wanted them to start reading. So I said, please read some story, some mythological story and use your own music, use your own imagination and depict stories for me and send it in videos. This was just for the March, that 15 days that we didn't have class. And then I realized that I cannot be like this and I cannot just ask them to do projects, that I have to start taking class. So in April, I started taking Zoom classes. Of course, it took quite a while for us to settle down because of the lag. And then what I did was I also made the children get into the theoretical aspect, like the history of dance. My senior students did a lot of research and 
did PowerPoint presentations. And uh, you won't believe it, Rachel and Smita. Actually, I'm thanking God for this, not for the COVID, but for this time to actually sit and think. Up until then, we were all just going here and there, and there was no solid thought process. There is a process of teaching, but things were just coming, and you know, you were doing one after the other without any thought. So this pause for me was very good because we got into a better system of reading. Of course, the online versions of Bharatanatyam have been quite uh, heavy for us, but the COVID has been pretty good for us because we are doing a lot of learning. And now, last week, I've started hybrid classes. It sounds to me like the dance and the training and the philosophy that goes around it is a very disciplined and deep art form. Do you think that has helped you and your students get through a time that for many of us has seemed kind of shapeless and scary? And I I speak for myself, but maybe I've been lacking in discipline and doing various things that I could have done and haven't done. And do you think that the, the systematic nature of this dance has helped you and your students get through it? Yes, absolutely. And I keep telling my students this every morning. I'm so thankful for this art because I'm a person who's been traveling a lot and meeting a lot of people. I'm a people person. And then to just be in the house with the family, each of them working from home. But it was this wonderful art form that, you know, got me into some kind. I'm now teaching more. I'm teaching a lot of students from abroad who I didn't have the time before to teach. I even have time to do exercises for myself for my own body, for my own, uh, some kind of a meditation. And I started learning music, uh, something that I wanted to do for so long. So all this is only because of the discipline that uh, this art form has given us, because the training is also very vigorous as the form is. So my students have done very well. One of them has won an online award based on her performance, online performance, and it's been very good. But we we have lost a lot of close friends and relatives. I wish the COVID had come in a different way, you know, in a happier way. Of course. Smitha, what about you? When did you realize that COVID was going to be something that had a major effect on the whole world, basically? (laughs) Early March, everything slowly started uh, getting cancelled. And by March 18th, we were complete in a complete lockdown. I honestly believe that, oh, by July, August, all this will be behind us and I'd be able to go back to uh, in-person classes. But no, things were very different. I had to get on to Zoom, much to my disdain. Now I'm blessing Zoom every day. But sorry, there was a time because of the lag, I would look down upon it saying, no, I don't know if I can do it. But the lag has actually taught me how we can think parallelly on two different lines and still make sense. It's not just one point of focus. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that? Literally, when I'm taking a class on Zoom, when I'm singing, what the children hear is maybe three seconds later. So if I'm singing ABC and they haven't yet started ABC, by the time I come to EFG, they are doing ABC. So there's no match. So I have to hold on to my own singing, to my own rhythm, and not get interfered with what they might be doing at a tangent. It might seem like they're going perpendicular to what I am singing. 
or they're doing something very different from what I am singing because they are behind me in beat. So I have to focus on both. It's almost like my singing is on autopilot. Oh, so in some ways it sort of strengthened your concentration, but also made you be able to concentrate on two things at once. Exactly. Wow. Actually, I think syncopation, you know, the syncopation of many things happens because when you say a beat, when you say this thing, tam, you're saying tam, but it's going to them in a different beat. And it also depends on the internet speeds of each of those windows. Of course. You have to say tam, but you are seeing tam. You know what I mean? That That's how many speeds are there. So like a syncopation of many, uh, many thoughts. And then finally, it's all only one. That's what I think Smita's trying to say is like, everything is one. You believe in the power of now and everything leads to one. It's a very high philosophical thought that uh, I call uh, Smita Mataji because she's <laughs> always into this. So, But I think it's a very lovely thought. <laughs> so Smita, I, I, actually both of you, the children start to learn this form quite young. And I think it's difficult for many of us adults to concentrate on Zoom interactions in the same way that we would concentrate on in-life interactions. How are you dealing with making sure that your students stay focused on your class and, and not doing other stuff at the same time? Smitha, do you have any uh, tips on that one? I actually spoke to the parents on my very first Zoom class and I shared with them saying, let us imagine that we are all in the regular dance class that we would come to where you drop your child off and leave. So that's the kind of environment I'm requesting you to create at your end in your homes for the one hour or one and a half hours that the children are with me. I would like to have proper lighting. So we actually spent one class where the children showed where they were going to dance. And I had to kind of tell them it has to be quiet. You can't be disturbed. People cannot be coming and talking to you. You can't run away to get a glass of water just because you're at home or you can't just run away to use the bathroom because you're at home. If you're not in front of me, I need to know where you are, which is how it is on the dance floor because I'm kind of responsible for you when you are with me. And a huge shout out to all my students and the parents for following through. The younger children, normally the parents drop the students at class, I don't allow them to sit and observe class, mainly because one, it's a distraction for the students. They're looking to their parents to get that reassurance that they're doing fine. Secondly, progress is usually very slow. A teacher sees the progress of the student, even if it is a minute progress. Sometimes parents who are not trained in Bharatanatyam may not see that progress and they may worry is my daughter, is she going to be able to dance? Is she going to be able to do anything? So for all those reasons, I request that parents drop the children and come back and pick them up at the end of the hour. But with my younger class, I actually made a very specific request. Please sit in on class, watch class so you can help the children. Ten months later, I know that these children don't need to be babysat anymore, but we're just doing it because now the parents are beginning to enjoy the classes. They're saying, we are learning so much just listening to what you're saying. So as long as it's on Zoom, parents will be there. I also have the students submit practice videos on Flipgrid for me. Not a whole lot, maybe two, three steps or maybe an item. 
that I correct minutely for them. Because on Zoom, everybody is on a little screen. Some of the small errors that they may have while performing tend to get slipped between the cracks. So when they send a video of only them dancing, it is a lot easier to give them the minute corrections. My fear is whenever we get back into in-person classes, I didn't want to have a whole lot of changes that need to be made because the view on Zoom is a little restricting when we have group classes. Oh, so you were worried about having to correct all these mistakes that have been developing over the period of COVID. Yes. Yes. That sounds amazing. And also an awful lot of work. Is it more work than teaching in person? It is definitely a lot more concentration, a lot more focused attention on the screen. Both Priya and I, even if there are 20 children dancing in person, we're trained to be able to pick out, you know, errors or corrections for the students. I don't see that same comfort for myself on a Zoom class if there are, say, five children on the screen. I don't know what it is, but it is harder for me to pick up an error in a group class on screen. Also, what happens is many of them here in Chennai live in flats and, you know, they're not able to strike their leg. You know, Bharatanatyam, uh, we strike the leg. The sound comes from the hollow of the foot. So that striking is actually, we can't hear it because the girls are on mute because all sounds of every house will come on Zoom. So we are not able to hear the striking. That is the first thing that is the lacking. Uh, Of course, the, the lag is there, but the first problem that we face as Bharatanatyam dancer, is that striking of the leg. And we make the beats in the leg. So when you go back to class, like last week, I realized that they have forgotten the art of striking the foot. And because somebody downstairs is telling them, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? So it's been a compromise in that way. And also the posture, sometimes, you know, there many of them, the shoulders are coming in front, which we are not able to see on Zoom with so many of them. In small windows. Of course, we do all these videos, everything, but nothing comes close to a live class, you know. And also, I've had some fantastic, uh, funny experiences. They'll say, ma'am, we can't hear ma'am, because if I'm going to say, recite this particular, like we have rhythmical jatis, like taaku, janam, tarita, whatever you do, make them say it. And then they'll say, ma'am, I can't hear you. Then I'll say, can you hear me now? No, ma'am. So (laughs) You know? And then... I had a child who didn't know the hand gestures. So she kept the the hand gestures that she knew. The first four she showed me on screen. And then she would put her uh, hands down so that her screen is, the screen cannot take it because she doesn't know. So I made her stand up. You know what this child did? She was showing me the hand gestures. After four, she didn't know. So she lifted her hand and started saying, because she thought that by doing that, I won't know that she doesn't know. Like these cute things they think of, criminal minds of these children. So she lifted her hands out of the the range of the camera. Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. She lifts it so that I cannot see her palm and I cannot see the gestures. But she thinks, she thinks, I will think she's doing it properly. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the students forget that we were also children and we were also needed to be creative So our teacher did not know that we didn't know something. And, you know, one girl used to go up in the terrace. Um, They had done a router over there and very good thing. But she would always, after about half an hour, she would log out and she would never come back to class. 
So one day I called up her mom and said, what is happening? You know what she, this girl does is like after some time, she just wants to see the birds, the sky and the beautiful setting sun. So she just switches it off and her mother never knew. So I said, but your daughter is saying that her connection is not proper and all the time she's logging off after half an hour. So the mother said, how did you know? I said, because even I'm like that. I'd rather look at the trees and, you know, look at the birds and look at the different shades of green. So that's exactly what she was doing. So, I mean, you learn, you learn to deal with everything. You learn to become more patient. I think also a feeling of empathy because uh, around us, a lot of artists are really suffering and many of the uh, musicians are not able to play because we don't have live concerts. So you think in ways and means of helping people in need. And you know, it's brought a sense of purpose for life, I think, this whole thing, experience. I want to take it in a very positive way in art and in life. Can you elaborate on that a bit more, that it's brought this sense of purpose? We have live musicians accompanying us in Chennai, in India. We have the live musicians will be sitting on stage performing along with us. And so our drummer or the violinist or the flautist, many of them are suffering because we are not having concerts where people can come. So now what I do is these small online performances that we have, I see to it that we go to a place where, like a studio where all the uh, formalities of, uh, you know, taking precautions, uh, masked up, temperature, uh, sanitizing, and we maintain social distance and we record and we help the artists earn some money. Okay, so before these musicians would have work because they were playing for your in-person performances, but now you're actually thinking, how can I help these musicians? Because now one is thinking more broadly. Yeah, I get it. And also we have the Association of Bharatanatyam Artists of India. I'm the vice president. So uh, we have a guild of artists, which is not thinking about only themselves, but we are thinking of other art forms, folk art forms. Every field has been affected, right, Rachel? Everybody has been affected. But people like us who have the know-how and technology, classes are going on. But there have been people who've been so busy performing, no time to teach. For them, life has come to a standstill. So... How do they all eat? So it's kind of uh, brought a sense of empathy, I would say, which was maybe lacking late before. And so are you doing something with these folk artists? Yes, yes. We, uh, the association, uh, we have, in fact, Smita's students, Smita has also donated a lot. Uh, all the Bharatanatyam dancers from the world over, we have a fund and we've, I think, about 500 artists, artistic families, 500 to 600 artistic families. And more than uh, 25 lakhs of rupees has been dispersed to these families. That way, life has been very purposeful. We know that when we come together, we can make a difference in somebody else's life. That's great. Smitha, is there anything you want to add to that? Because it sounds like you've been involved from a distance as well. Yes. In fact, I was just thinking, I consider myself very blessed. The universe has allowed me to just wait and to continue and pursue what I'm doing. But that was not enough for me because there were lots of times I was hearing of people who have lost their jobs, who could not bring a meal to the table. So then I began actively getting involved or donating, you know, what can I donate? A little bit of money here to help them. We're not allowed to go out and do anything as far as helping. So if I can donate money that would help somebody earn their living for the day, that is how I was pursuing it. I also turned to nature, you know, to get a clue. Because if you look at nature, nothing has stopped. 
the sun is still rising the birds are still coming to my bird feeder to get their feed life goes on for them there's no covid for them that is teaching me that yes you just need to put one foot in front of the other You've both been talking about how this dance form is a communication, uh, it's telling narratives. And I wondered if there are any narratives that you found particularly helpful to communicate in dance during this time. Any any stories that have given you solace or guidance? Um, Priya, do you want to take that first? I've had some uh, online performances where I have been able to express my angst and I also able to pray to the to the mother goddess there is one song called shiva kama sundari uh, which i did it initially i had no clue about the the impact of this covid and all this pandemic at all i didn't even realize we were in the midst of a pan i mean we are all part of this and i didn't even thought i would be a part of this pandemic culture but at that time itself slowly uh, the way people were reacting the way people were think so there's a beautiful song called shiva kama sundari and in that I could actually uh, my angst and it was kind of a catharsis for me. What's the song about? So the Shiva Kama Sundari is uh, the mother goddess who is the wife of Shiva. The story goes that she is in his body. The one half of Shiva is male and the other one is female. The yin and the yang, you know? So the poet says that you are the goddess of this entire universe and come and protect me. There's so much that is happening I'm not able to bear it. please come and save us so i could actually turn it to this whole situation you know this tiny speck of a virus i mean it's so tiny but look at the gigantic proportions of uh, the impact it has it is only very small you vanquished so many demons the mother goddess has vanquished many demons you sitting on a lion and this small virus you're not able to take away why can't you do it for us that is my prayer even now actually so that narrative really like you know at the end of the song i was of course crying so every song as i said any idea could be contemporized and we've done a lot of uh, narratives in that sense smitha have you had anything like that actually yes this may have been in april i had a chance to present uh, something online on the navarasas which are the nine emotions that we use in bharatanatyam and the verse that i was um that i was working on depicted the goddess parvati the nine emotions she was expressing to shiva starting from shringara which is love and then disgust at the snakes that he is adorned with and fear as well so as i was progressing through this particular verse she uh, expresses fear and at that point although i did express fear what came to me that's when uh, this virus was slowly picking up and uh, ppes were not available for our medical profession uh, professional frontline workers so that somehow got incorporated into what i was trying to present quite un- unbeknownst to me it just happened and this was online and i had to actually stop for a little bit because there was a question answer session after that i was weeping and then i had to kind of compose myself and then come back for the uh, question answer session it kind of zeroed in at that time because i had planned actually to emote what the lyrics were saying that is what i had planned and then the enormity of the situation frontline workers not having ppe that kind of took over 
I mentioned this earlier, I was privileged enough to attend one of your Zoom classes as a, an observer on Sunday. And this was a class with all your former students who are scattered all over the place that you've started since COVID began. And I don't think you would have done this class had it not been for COVID. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. It goes back to me not being hugely appreciative of online teaching because of the lag. Once I started the Zoom classes, I realized that these children can come back to class even after they've had a gap of, some of them have had a gap of at least five to seven years. So that is my COVID blessing class, as I talk about. I have one who signs in from Hawaii, one who signs in from Seattle, two of them who sign in from New York, and some of them from within Ohio. And we're able to meet, thanks to the pandemic, which is forcing us artists, as Priya was saying, to think on the positive side as much as possible in the middle of all the losses that everyone is facing. Being cognizant of those losses and not trivializing any loss, but trying to focus on something that could be the silver lining for the cloud. It is an outlet for them to come and do something that they love so much, offering them the opportunity to express themselves, to dance, to connect. As we emote these verses or songs from the scripture, it also offers them the opportunity to turn within, to connect within that oasis. It's like a moving meditation. So that is that is a big blessing for me. And I, I'm just going to add, I, I'm charmed by the way that you, you refer to them as children because... I know that you do teach a, a lot of very young people, but these were young women, I think, right? Yes. <laughs> See, <laughs> in fact, earlier when Priya kept saying my children, I wanted to step in and say she's referring to her students, uh, Rachel, and you know, <laughs> not not her children. Yes. I just love them. You know, they're so yes. so sweet, and we we have we our institution. We don't have too many. I mean, my institution is not a very I have only about 30 students, so the, the interaction is very, very uh, personal also. I would like to share a very important aspect of our legacy, our hereditary. Our guru is Professor Sudharani Raghupati, as we have mentioned. Uh, her guru um, was um, Sri K.P. Kittapapile, who is a direct descendant of the Tanger Quartet, the seventh generation of the Tanger Quartet. And the Tanger Quartet are the ones who have codified the steps and the items. And what is the order in which these Bharatanatyam pieces can be presented? So kind of quote-unquote inventors of today's uh, Bharatanatyam in many ways. So we belong to that tradition. We are indeed honored to have that kind of um, legacy um, just handed over to us. When I was initiated to dance in 72 and when Priya, I don't think we thought of this legacy and all that. We looked at our guru, what an amazing teacher she is. But the, the legacy we came to know much later as we grew up in class and realized where we have actually had the good fortune to come into. And now you'll continue to pass that on to your students in Dublin, Ohio, and in Chennai in India. 
Listen, I want to thank you both so much. My two guests today are Smitha Margal and Priya Morali. Absolute honor to be here. Absolute delight to be here. So, so, so grateful for this. I must thank Smitha because if not for Smitha, I wouldn't have come into this, uh, Rachel. And uh, thank you for your very good questions and the way you've uh, taken us through this. COVID Conversations Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. A great many people have helped out in making this series happen, and I can't mention them all, but I would like to express special thanks to Christina Benedetti, Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Paston, and Nick Spitalski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.